Okay, hello and welcome everyone to this Institute for Government event at Conservative Party Conference. I'm Emma Norris, I'm the Deputy Director of the Institute for Government and we're here this morning to talk about improving the nation's diet and how the government um, can use obesity policy to improve the UK's health and economy. I want to say thanks straight away to the Obesity Health Alliance, the Food Foundation and Sustain for supporting this event and making it possible. Now, it's an important time to be talking about these issues um, for me personally, given that I've been eating uh, conference food for the last two days and all of you too. Uh, the UK has the third highest obesity rates in Europe. It's behind only Turkey and Malta. Almost one in three adults are now classified as living with obesity. That's an, an increase from one in 10 adults in 1970. And obesity is most heavily concentrated in the poorest areas, in the most deprived areas. Now, the government's 2020 obesity strategy did set an ambitious vision to improve the UK's health. And the subsequent levelling up strategy identified diet as a major focus for reducing inequalities. Today, we're going to be talking um, about both those strategies and talking about how government can use obesity policy to reach its targets for increasing healthy life expectancy. We're going to be talking about managing some of the trade-offs um, between the costs and benefits of obesity policy, talking about the role of industry in working with government to deliver policy in this area, and we'll be talking about what the public thinks of obesity policy, which policies are likely to be most popular and where some of the challenges in convincing the public sit. Very lucky to be joined by a brilliant panel today. We've got uh, Joe, Joe, uh, Joe Gideon, MP, Member of Parliament for Stoke-on-Trent Central. Sophie Metcalf, who's a researcher at the IFG and who leads our work in this space. Uh, John Mange, who's the Director of Policy and Influencing at the British Heart Foundation. Alex Veitch, who's the Director of Policy and Insight at British Chambers of Commerce. And Dr. Alison Tetstone, who's the Independent Advisor and former Chief Nutritionist at Public Health England. So, big panel. It's going to be lots of time for discussion for audience questions as well. Sophie, I want to come to you first and ask you to kind of set the scene for us um, a bit. We've had government policy on obesity for, for what, kind of 30 years now, um, but yet obesity has continued to, to rise to get a lot worse over that period. Why do you think that is and what can we learn from government failures so far? Thank you, Emma. So I think obesity is what we'd call at the Institute a chronic policy problem. As Emma says, it's kind of been, there's been 30 years of policy on this. We've seen 14 different strategies, over 600 different policies and I think 10 targets and all of which have been missed um, and yet it's kind of continued to rise and rise in the last 30 years um, so kind of earlier this year we set ourselves the task of looking at the history of obesity policy and trying to identify the factors that uh, were the reason why um, all of this policy all of this activity hasn't been more successful I think there are kind of four things I really wanted to, to pick out for you um, the main thing that really came across is that government has focused on policies and this is government over 30 years has focused on policies that are kind of aimed at the wrong thing they're overwhelmingly focused on individual responsibility um, and particularly things like education and information campaigns um, which is certainly valuable in themselves um, but these are all based on the principle of kind of as an individual you need to change your behavior um, and that's kind of the root of the problem the, re the root of this rising um, Obesity is people's individual behaviour. And what we found in the report is that that just really isn't the case. There's overwhelming scientific evidence that it's kind of a combination of biology plus environment is what I like to call it. So kind of there's your biology, your sort of genetics, your predisposition um, to living with obesity. Um, but then there is the food environment um, and our food system, which has changed so dramatically um, in the last kind of 
50 years, but um, anyone who's read the National Food Strategy will know that Henry Dimbleby is kind of the, the king of work in this area. But um, he talks about the kind of junk food cycle and the changing food environments we've seen where um, over the last yeah, 40, 50 years, we've seen an overwhelming dominance of food that is um, high in fat, salt and sugar and food that is ultra processed. Um, and we're kind of biologically predisposed to kind of seek out these foods um, in terms of they're very calorie um, calorie dense, very energy dense. Um, you know, historically that would have been a really positive thing for us as a species to look to look for those foods. But now our kind of whole food system is awash with them, and it's very difficult to avoid them. Um, and they also often um, they're made with the cheapest ingredients, the lowest cost, and they have the longest shelf lives, which make them the most profitable. Also, often the cheapest. Um, so there's kind of the way the food system is set up at the moment those foods are dominating and it's become harder to eat healthily and i think in the last when you look at that long run of the last 30 years you see human willpower hasn't changed in that time it's not about people's ability to make decisions to avoid that food if, if it were we wouldn't have seen the scale of increase that we have seen um it's it's about much more systemic factors than that and i think policy hasn't been able to tackle those systemic factors effectively um the second thing i wanted to pick out is that um policy has been voluntary for businesses to comply with. There were very good reasons why many of these policies were introduced as voluntary individually. And in some of our interviews, people highlighted that they thought it was a good thing that that was done initially because um, you know industry can know best what, it, uh, what will work well for them. And it was important that government and industry tried that collaboration. Um, but the scale of change we've seen through things like the public health responsibility deal was the main thing I'm thinking about here, um, just hasn't been enough to tackle the issue. Industry hasn't kind of uh, delivered the kind of change that uh, government were hoping from that partnership. The third thing is it's obesity policy hasn't been a priority for number 10, save for Boris Johnson in 2020, when there was kind of a, a real push for policy around the 2020 obesity strategy, which we haven't seen many of those policies implemented since then. Um, so that was a very kind of brief period. It hasn't been a policy priority within Department for Health. You know, it's uh, by nature focused on crises within the NHS. It's kind of public health has been kind of sidelined in that context um, or in the rest of government. You know, um, obesity is a cross government issue. Uh, if you're thinking about um, DEFRA in charge of food regulation, DCMS in charge of advertising regulation, Treasury in charge of budgets, like it's split across government and um, if it's not a priority across government, it's, there's lim uh, that limits the amount of power DHSC has to affect change. And finally, the thing I wanted to pick out was kind of the reason for some of these, um, this focus on individual responsibility within policy. I think partly it's to do with kind of culture and our kind of national understanding about the science of kind of what causes um, rising obesity. But um, there's also kind of, I think within politics, there's been a fear of nanny statism, a kind of a real fear of that very visceral public reaction against interventionist policies. Um, there's been a, a fear of putting prices up and a fear of harming industry. And I hope today we'll kind of discuss the different things underpinning those fears and the evidence um, on those three areas. Um, and then finally, I wanted to finish with what can government learn? And the one point I want to pick out here is that continuing the same path won't work. We've tried it for 30 years, kind of there. Clearly, policy hasn't been sufficient so far, and there is something we need to do differently. We can have discussions about exactly what that looks like, but continuing with the path we have um, won't be enough. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Sophie. So, I, I'm, Joe, I'm going to come to you next. I think there were really three things that, that Sophie kind of identified there. I need to focus on kind of the systemic factors that are driving these, these rises that 
this hasn't been an area of sufficient kind of cross-government priority um, and this particular kind of question around fear of nanny statism and what therefore the policy mix that you need is. Um, you know, I wonder if, if you could talk a little bit about whether you think government is doing enough to meet the targets that it has, has set to improve healthy life expectancy and reduce health inequalities and, and your view on some of the challenges that Sophie's identified. Yes, I mean, so my initial um, involvement with the food agenda was back in 2021, um, chairing the all-party parliamentary group on the national food strategy. So, so I'm I'm an outlier when it comes to, um, you know, I believe totally that we should be doing more, and um, that it has to be about um, government-led uh, change in behaviour rather than individual uh, responsibility. Um, that's not popular, I have to say, uh, and um, until we we don't frame the, the food debate in terms of nanny statism, we're not going to make progress. That is the, that is the key challenge. Um, I remember actually even um, Boris Johnson, who, uh, as Sophie rightly said, um, was the probably the, the biggest proponent of, of um, the obesity strategy and doing something about obesity after uh, his own personal experience. Um, you know, a, a few months on, um, was the one who was persuaded that the buy one get one free um, policy was not necessarily something that we should carry out because it, it, it didn't land popularly with with, um, with conservative colleagues. Um, ironically, on the other hand, you know, the, the argument was the food industry, you know, can't do it, doesn't want it. Within the food industry, um, the the, the the, the leading supermarkets had said, well, we've already invested because it was announced, you know, we've already invested significant funding. So the, the, the kind of responsible retailers um, had, had, had actually taken action. And um, I think there is, there is a role for industry um, doing it anyway, but it is a challenge when, when it's a voluntary policy that uh, some will and some won't, and, and those who don't, um, get a competitive advantage. So, you know, even those those supermarkets who had said, well, we've taken the, the buy one, get one free offers away. Um, one has said to me, you know, we might reintroduce them if we find the competitors are getting a competitive advantage because of that. So um, I think definitely government needs, needs to do more. Um, the thing that does worry me significantly about the obesity piece is that um, because we don't have that cross-party, sorry, that, that cross-departmental food task force, um, we treat obesity as a medical problem that can be solved by a medical solution, i.e., you know, have an injection and you'll lose weight quickly and you don't actually need to change your diet at all. I think that's very dangerous um, and, and it's the wrong approach. I do believe that the government has a, a key public health role to play and that that shouldn't be called nanny statism it should be called you know what what does go you know government has a responsibility for the health of the planet the health of the nation um and and individual people's you know well-being um and you know to, to get behavior change uh, I, I, i'll refer back to smoking for instance that um we would never have got the the change in attitude to smoking mm -hmm. had government not um you know, banned smoking in public places and that sort of thing. You know, it, it re relying on everybody to, to change the habit didn't work with smoking and it doesn't work with obesity. Thank you, Joe. John, I want to come to you now and make this kind of connection between obesity policy and, and the economy. 
And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how government can use obesity policy policy in this space to benefit the UK economy as well as to benefit public health and whether government should be doing more to, to drive that connection. Sure, thanks. I mean, uh, it's, it's a really interesting question, but I think we should frame it. Firstly, obesity is a problem that affects people, affects people's lives and their health, their ability to work and so forth. So uh, the, the economic aspects are, of course, really important. But as a, as a health charity, I would first and foremost say this is an issue of people's health and happiness and ability to live a sort of satisfying, fulfilling, rewarding life. Um, but um, yeah, government absolutely needs to do more. They need to do something. They need to start enacting some policies. Um, we have three decades of sort of stop-start policy. There have been some successes, but nothing sustained and no sustained strategy. As Sophie said right from the start, this is a chronic complex policy problem with multifaceted causes and a multifaceted solution. And I think sometimes the complexity of obesity as a policy problem gets in the way of action. We get stuck in analysis and so forth. But actually, we've got to start somewhere. Um, and a good place to start would be knowing what works. Policy is all about knowing what works. And we can always be doing more. We can always be using RTCs to understand what, what, what works better. Um, sorry, randomized controlled trials and so forth. The evidence base can always be better. But we know what works. And we've seen it in the sugar tax or the soft drink industry levy. So this was an upstream intervention, a mandatory one that has uh, led to significant reductions in sugar consumption, particularly amongst children, and particularly amongst the poorest in our society, um, without industry having to um, reduce their profits. It's actually, sales have actually increased of those uh, drinks that are subject to the levy. So we know something works. We know an upstream intervention works. And I think it does have to be upstream interventions. Um, as we've already discussed, behavior change has not worked. It's part, it's part of the solution. Education is part of it, but it's multifaceted. And uh, coming back to your question, uh, which I'm not answering at all, the, the economic benefits will, um, will, will follow from that because we know that obesity is, is an absolutely massive driver of cardiovascular disease, cancers, liver disease, type 2 diabetes. I mean, it goes on and on. And we know that those long-term conditions are severely impacting um, economic participation um, in, in, in certain um, demographics, very large demographics, um, and people are not able to, uh, to, to contribute towards the economy because they are suffering from long-term chronic diseases that are largely driven by uh, obesity, uh, which has you know, systemic causes. So the solutions have to be systemic. So that's why Recipe for Change Coalition is calling for an extension to the soft drinks industry levy or something similar, you know, there's various options for how it might work in practice, um, to food as a way of um, mandating the uh, reduction in uh, salt and sugar in the foods that, that, that we, we consume, the processed foods. Um, and, and I think I, I, I do I do think industry are in a difficult position. If you look at uh, if, if you look at the position they're in, particularly the smaller companies, um, they're in a kind of classic, it's a kind of classic, um, if, if you like, game theory, sort of Nash equilibrium, whereby um, uh, there's no incentive for, for everyone to change their dominant strategy, really. 
and 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 that's and that's the point with um, with the voluntary schemes really is that some have come on board. Um, uh, some of the, the you know the larger the larger players, as 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 Joe said, like Tesco, we're in partnership with Tesco. They went ahead with the uh, the um, promotions legislation because they're all set up for it. But there's, there's, the incentives aren't the same, so there has to be a level playing field. And a mandatory levy on salt and sugar, in some form or other, is the only way that really that is going to that is going to work. Um, so, yeah, I, I think government needs to do something. Uh, it needs to start enacting policies. There's loads of policy. We've got I don't know what 14 different strategies have been produced in the last three decades, or something like that, mm. or four within this administration. Um, but knowing where you want to get. Uh, is is not enough. There has to be a set of coordinated policies and actions to, to, to get you there. And that's where we're lacking, is that long-term strategy. And we just have to start somewhere. We can't get bogged down in the complexity of the problem and getting fatalistic about it. We just need to start with enacting policies. We have one that we know has worked. So let's get on with a mandatory levy um, on salt and sugar. Uh, I, we firmly believe that this is the only way we're going to make a significant difference. And we have to, and the recipe for change um, have uh, modeling has, has uh, I think, projected that this could over 25 years save the economy overall 77.9 billion. So that is a huge amount of money. And that's the kind of health relating saving, health related savings we really, really need to see if we're not going to carry on spending more and more on the NHS, uh, treating people with chronic diseases that could be prevented. Um, at the expense of other things that we really need to direct GDP towards, like social care. Thank you, John. Alex, um, I want to come to you next. I mean, <coughs> the role of industry, as you'd expect, has come out really strongly in, in, in Joe and um, in John's comments. You know, some discussion about what we have achieved through voluntary action, but actually really the need for kind of mandatory action from government um, to to really kind of shift the dial in the way that we want to see. Where do you where do you sit on that, Alex? How do you think that government and industry should be working together to tackle obesity policy? Uh, well, well, thanks, Emma. Can you hear me okay? Uh, yeah, great, that's, that's great. So look, um, I'm gonna give a slightly broader perspective, if, if I may, and um, I may uh, leave more of the nuances about the, the interventions to, to others and, and hear the, uh, the views from the audience too. Just, just to sort of back right up for a minute. Um, we are struggling across the UK for people in work. And, and I, I sometimes go to things like, like this and other events and think we sort of divide, divide ourselves into different, we're, we're people here, we're shoppers there, we're students here, we're policy wonks here at this table, or, or we're, we're people at the office. Actually, it's, it, we're talking about the same thing really. And in our surveys, we find about three quarters of the businesses we speak to um, are short of people. And we find three quarters of those people, those businesses tell us that is putting extra stress, extra workload on the rest of the staff, or they're doing less stuff. So for me, I think the way to partly unlock this debate might be to start from where the business are and think about what's the mutual uh, benefit of action. Um, on the panel yesterday, we were talking about occupational health. So if I, just a minute or two about that, because I think this is very, a very interesting development. Um, we are seeing now, particularly larger businesses providing, and fund, you know, quite frankly, funding or part funding occupational health and wellbeing 
for people. Um, certainly quite a few jobs I've had in mostly small organisations have offered some kind of support and an option for PMI as well for, for, for those that, that want to do that. Um, I, I think there's much more interest in, in doing this now, even among the smaller businesses, re really because it's so important to, to have um, um, people, to look after people. It is more difficult to recruit people from overseas than it was. It's not a political point, it, it's true. Uh, we found just over 10% of staff even tried to do that. Businesses even tried to do that in our last survey um, over the previous 12, 12 months. Um, and so um, we also believe that being in good, uh, productive, um, rewarding employment is good for people. That is a good thing. And we also think that if there are interventions that are done quickly when people fall out of work for well-being and health reasons, the quicker you get back, the better, because what we also believe to be true is that the people that are off for a long time, whether it's mental health or musculoskeletal problems or, or, or perhaps obesity or perhaps obesity is part of all those things, and you guys will know better than me, um, but, but it's quite hard to come back. You know, um, We also see a massive change, you will all know this, in flexibility, flexible working, telecommuting, we found three quarters of businesses are offering some kind of flexibility and that's businesses across all sizes. I imagine if you'd asked that five years ago, you'd got a different answer. Ten years ago, you'd have got a totally different answer. So, um, and also something else that came up yesterday at the other panel session was somebody from Cycling UK said, well, what about cycling? And, and, and I used to work in Active Travel and you, you will find progressive businesses offering cycle to work schemes, maybe even lockers, showers. So I think actually it's important to, to hold the mirror up to our, to our community sometimes and say, well, what, what is the role for you in taking action in this space in the broader sense? Um, so look, coming towards, so that, that's the starting point, right? I think that's the way to approach the conversation. Um, just a word or two about, about the actual detailed topic of the, of, of the day. It's not, it's, not my, it's not my area, it's a very complicated area. Um, I, I am an environmentalist by background training and in that space, we tend to talk about external costs and the market not valuing certain outcomes like pollution. And so the role of the government to intervene is to guard against externalities, external costs. And typically, you find price signals um, and regulation, upstream regulation, as John called it, are, are commonly used. You could call those sticks and carrots. And so our starting point for all these conversations is um, what can be done through voluntary action, through price signals and incentives, um, with regulation having, uh, we have set quite a hard, but high bar for where we would support regulation. We don't just oppose all regulation, but you know, it has to be efficient. It has to be the best way of achieving that outcome. So actually, I'd love to know more. I mean, I believe I'm right to say there's quite a lot of voluntary initiatives going on already upstream. It'd be interesting to see what the audience know about that. Um, it's not my field, so I'm not gonna comment too much on it, but I would like to see policy interventions having clear evidence and being based um, on, on uh, incentives, price signals, nudging people, um, labelling, all those things that, that I know much more about in the environmental space and, and do have an impact with regulation then as, as a kind of look. If we, don't, if we don't get the movement we need to, to look at these externalities, that might be the way to go. So I think that's just the perspective from my side. Brilliant. Thank you, Alex. Um, Alison, I want to come to you now and I'd love to hear your reflections on what, what Alex has just said, but also to, to hear from you, particularly on where the public are in this space. Are there, you know, are there particular obesity policies um, that the public support, policies they might have more concerns about? Where, where is the public in this? 
Um, so I've been in this space for over 20 years and um, there's been lots of polling of the public in that time, very recent polling, and it's all been relatively consistent. The public do support action in this space. They, uh, the, they recognize, nobody sets out to overfeed their child. Nobody sets out to overfeed themselves. They recognize that they are being nudged into buying and consuming more. And that's independent of our social class. We like to think it's all about somebody else, but actually it's about us. With over 60% of the nation obese or overweight, that's a big deal. And with the arrival of the new injectable anti-obesity drugs, that is going to cripple the NHS. Lifelong weekly injections of a very expensive drug for a large swathe of the population isn't going to solve any problem. It's just going to cost a lot of money. The, the public haven't yet been tested on that, but my guess is that they would find that a pretty unpalatable message. Um, so, so I was very proud when the government announced a long time ago in 2016, 17, really quite a broad reaching obesity policies. First time we'd seen a policies come out of number 10, they announced a soft drink industry levy, which John mentioned. That's been remarkably successful. There's been a, over a 40%, 46% reduction in sugar levels in, in drinks through legislation and industry has they didn't like it to begin with, but then they welcomed, welcomed it because it evened the playing field. Um, but um, part of my job was to monitor what the food industry were doing. And I can tell you now there is more sugar in shopping baskets than there was back in 2015. And that's despite a lot of voluntary action from parts of the food industry. Our breakfast cereals are better, our yogurts are better. But the confectionery companies, the biscuit companies have just gone way and sold much more product. And that has not happened by magic. That has happened because companies have aggressively marketed. And the government in 2016, 17, and again in subsequent years have promised regulation that would help pull that back. They would not ban the marketing of unhealthy food, but they would set a benchmark against what food could be sold. So my last job for government, I was the expert witness against Kellogg's, because Kellogg's, would, I couldn't believe it, were in the High Court arguing about the sugar content of Frosties. And Kellogg's are trying to argue that Frosties are healthy because you have them with milk. They're not. But the reason they were prepared to risk their, I don't know why they risked their <laughs> uh, reputation, but part is probably because of the vast amount of sales through the promotion of unhealthy cereals. And so the government have promised advertising and marketing regulations. Of course, government departments bat against that. If they're sponsoring the food industry, they're sponsoring the advertising industry. But those kind of things do need to come on. And can I just finally make one more point? The thing that really is the big game changer now are the, uh, are the delivery apps, just, just the delivery of this world. They are aggressive. They might be presenting themselves as a salad marketing company, they are not. They're partnering with the big um, food, uh, fast food companies and driving more calories. We've seen a big expansion of the fast food industry. You could all tell that, but we have the figures show it. And that will inevitably make the problem worse. And a bit of education, a bit of very unevenly taken up voluntary action, based on my 20 years experience, is not going to change anything. Thank you very much, Alison.
Um, I want to kind of return some of the points that you've just made, Alison, but one of the things that come out so strongly, I think, in our work and throughout this panel is just the sheer scale mm. of government activity that has taken place um, over the last few decades. I think every government since 1992 has recognised the challenge. There have been 14 government strategies, hundreds of policies, key institutions have come and gone. How do we get away from this constant churn of strategy, policy and institution to actually build a proper long-term policy framework for change? How do we avoid just the, doing exactly the same thing? Well, so I think we have had lots of policies. We've just had very little um, legislation come on board. So when we have got legislation, some of it has been implemented very well, like soft sinks industry, I think. Some has not been implemented well, like the school food standards. And um, so unless we can turn policy into legislation and enforcement, nothing will change. Um, and that policy needs to, and those, that legislation needs to be deep enough, I'm afraid, to affect sales. You can't continue to have your apple pie and eat it, which may be a bad analogy for today, but you cannot continue to think we can grow our businesses, our food businesses that are pushing, to use Henry Binwell's language, junk food out of the population, make those businesses even bigger. That, that food has to go somewhere. It either goes on our waistlines or into our landfill. Neither of what we probably want. I don't know what we want as a country. But our polling suggests we don't want that. Mm. Joe, I want to. Yeah, no, I mean, I think the interesting thing about um, a, a national food policy was this originally, you know, Henry Dimbleby was commissioned by DEFRA. Mm. And it, it's where this, this piece sits that I think is interesting because I think it can't sit with DEFRA, it can't just sit with health. You know, this is, this is you know, I talk about levelling up as, as the prism through which all government policy needs to be uh, enacted and, and maybe food is, is also something that, that has to sit cross-departmentally but there needs to be a, a very high level task force for, for which it is a top priority because the challenge is, you know, when it sits within individual government departments it's never the top priority and you know it has to be the top priority i mean i think interestingly the cost of living crisis had a, a bizarrely negative effect on the desire to to implement food policy you know good food policy because the, the argument was well you know people can't afford good quality food uh, healthy food because junk food's cheaper so we mustn't stop them buying junk food during a cost of living crisis i mean Really? You know. <laughs> John. Um, yeah, with regard to public support, I think um, I think Alison's right. Uh, the uh, Obesity Health Alliance did some polling which indicated that I think 73% of the population uh, support um, upstream regulatory measures. As long as the money that's created from levies is then um, goes towards things like children's breakfast clubs. So if it's framed in that way, the public are overwhelmingly supportive. Um, yeah, on, um, I mean, it's really difficult because just taking the, the, where you tend to get good policy success, look at smoking as a good example, it's where you have a very, very clear problem, a very clear solution or set of solutions that you know work that have been evaluated as effective but also crucially the political will and political <coughs> opportunity 
And those three stars kind of aligned at that moment where Boris Johnson um, was recovering from COVID and realized that his, uh, his uh, overweight had been a key contributory factor to a very, very near fatal um, uh, case, of, case of COVID. Um, but it fell off the agenda really quickly as soon as his own political skin was, was, um, was, was uh, in peril. That was the first thing that got dropped. And I think that tells us something, that that was the policy that got chucked under the bus. Um, and that tells us something maybe about the role of industry in, in, um, in this, in the industry lobbyists. Um, and I, I think, you know, in, in, in the world of tobacco, there are quite strict rules about how the tobacco companies, there's, you know, World Health Organization agreements about the role of tobacco companies in, in political decision making. And um, I think we really need to see something similar for food as well. Thanks, John. So if you want to pick up um, a couple of things that have come out in discussion here. So uh, Joe's talked about the need for a high level task force, you know, for us to really make progress on that that cross-government action. And that's something that's come up very strongly in, in IFG's research. So I'd love to hear reflections on that. And also this point around political will. I mean, I think we, we find consistently in our, our work at IFG that when you need to make a kind of big long-term change, having buy-in at the very top of government on a political level is a critical part of that. Where are we? Do you have any confidence that we're going to see that kind of leadership um, anytime soon? Big questions. Okay, on the task force side of things, yes, yeah, so one of the core recommendations that came out of our report was the need for a joint food and health unit. And I can kind of almost hear eyes rolling already because I know that's what like, everything we're talking about together. Um, but I think in this space, it's, it is an example where it's a truly cross-government issue. It's an area where DHSC doesn't have enough influence at the moment and the levers are already distributed across the department. You know, if you want to introduce some kind of levy, that has to be done in collaboration with the Treasury. If you want food regulation, that has to be done in collaboration with DEFRA. And if you want advertising regulation, that has to be done in collaboration with DCMS. Um, and the only way you are going to pull these departments together is if you get their incentives aligned, which a kind of central um, task force with the buy-in, crucially, which I will come to, the buy-in of kind of the PM and the kind of senior um, ministers would um, that's the only way you're going to get that kind of collaboration across policy. I think one of the things that came up in the report um, was that at the moment those incentives really aren't aligned. You know, clearly DEFRA has an eye on kind of the food industry, which has had a very difficult time with kind of Brexit and COVID and supply chain issues and inflation. Like there are there are really big issues that DEFRA are grappling with, really big issues that DCMS are grappling with. So how do you get this to be a bigger part of the agenda? And I think for us, that kind of machinery of government change where you get people in the room agreeing the scale of the problem and agreeing on the kind of solutions and the trade-offs involved um, is the way that you can make progress. On the political will, I don't have a huge amount of optimism that that's going to change soon. Um, I think there's a kind of, um, at the moment, the debate is still very much around kind of individual responsibility. I don't think that has really um, the evidence we're kind of talking about has cut through. I think there has been progress since um, the national food strategy. And I think in the last year, we've seen more conversations, but I think what happened with the 2020 obesity strategy, um, the problems that led to that being dropped are still problems today. And it's not, it remains not a government priority. Um, I think the one thing that is coming out more, which we've kind of touched on today is the economic implications. So the OBR raised um, 
obesity and the kind of um, generally kind of long-term sickness and the rise in economic inactivity as one of their key risk, uh, fiscal risks um, in their latest report. And I think as that is becoming a more um, well understood and the kind of long-term implications of obesity in terms of an uh, aging population um, and kind of locking in of um, increased spending associated with that, I think that is bringing some increased pressure for this to become more of a government priority, um, but I'm yet to see uh, evidence that that has happened. Thanks, Sophie. And Alex, I wanted to, to come to you on some of the points that Alison made. I think she made a really powerful case for the need for legislation and enforcement um, and the limits of, of voluntary action. How do you think industry will respond to that? This is a this is quite quite a tough question to be honest. But listen, um, uh, I think the uh, the let me just back up again. The government is looking at regulating uh, on occupational health. You know, they've got two options out at the minute. I know we know this is about food, right? But just bear with me. So, and I don't I don't see in every sector that we work with a a sort of recoiling of of regulation where, where the need arises. We, we, we think actually on OH again, um, price signals incentive are, are, are a really good option as well to explore. And, um, and, and I don't work in the, for the few representative bodies. The, the Chambers of Commerce are cross-sector. So I'm not, I'm not gonna get into specifics about the food because I, I think it's, it's, it's quite a detailed subject. But um, uh, I, I also, you know, I, I, I wouldn't, if you, if you, I do work a lot with the, with the food industry and I worked in logistics before this job. And, and I think if you said to the food industry or the, the broader kind of supply chain around food and supermarkets, um, you, you're sort of controlling government policy in this whole space, they, they, they may disagree with that because it, it has been a very difficult few years. Um, the radio this morning had the, the whole thing was about prices starting to come down at supermarkets. So they're under tremendous pressure. Business rates, energy costs, supply chains have been really hard. We're just about to get, by the way, um, food certifications required for, for um, um, imports from the EU to this country for the first time, which is a requirement of Brexit. People maybe not know that. And um, our trading, our sourcing of food is going to be even more global than it already is. So if we're looking at upstream, that, uh, you know, um, um, that, that is quite a challenge when you source food from everywhere. Um, so um, I, I don't know that... Um, there's there's an easy answer, I guess. I for me as a policy person, it would be important to understand uh, and evaluate what the price signals work has done or not done. It seems like the the, the I've heard you you guys say good things about the, the sugar levy. Um, I think it'd be important to look at the evidence about nudging and information. Um, I'll just say one more thing about on the climate side. You know, look, we're seeing the rubber hit the road on green policies, aren't we? And um, we saw the ULES situation um, I think sometimes it is about being level sort of being level with, with people saying there is a cost to some of these interventions that we will have to bear because we want the outcome to be the right one so I think we're getting there on climate it's a bumpy road in the business community we're doing our best to actually support the government to make those difficult choices even if it means me a bit being a bit pragmatic on dates as long as you don't cut back the whole goal <laughs> of net zero um, I wonder if there's a, a few lessons in how that political discourse has gone that might be useful for this debate as well. Okay, we've got about 20 minutes left, so I want to open up to audience questions now. I'm going to take questions in kind of twos and threes. If you could wait for the microphone, we'll be coming around and let us know um, where you're from uh, as well. Start here, here, and here. 
Hello, Jenna Elford, uh, Head of Policy at the Vegetarian Society. A question on meat in the diet. Uh, there's a 25% increase in the relative risk of diabetes for every 100 grams of bread and processed meat in the diet. What does the panel think of giving the public the opportunity to choose more healthy and plant-based meals in public sector catering in schools, hospitals, workplaces? We've got figures of 60% of people polling willing to eat less meat. Thank you. Uh, Beth Quality from the Charity Versus Arthritis. Um, so people living with obesity uh, have an increased risk of developing lots of musculoskeletal conditions, including rheumatoid arthritis. Um, and ultimately, you're more likely to be living with obesity if you live in a more deprived area. So how should the government be forefronting health inequalities in this discussion? Hello, uh, Lindsay McDonald, Chief Executive of Magic Breakfast and a very proud supporter of the Recipe for Change campaign. And I just wondered what the panel's views and thoughts were on school food and the opportunity there for improving health and particularly with a long-term view. And particularly interested in, Alex, your thoughts around businesses' role potentially in supporting and improving school food standards. Thank you so much. Okay, so we have... Um, Meeting giving people the choice to, the choice to choose healthier options, uh, health inequalities, and school food. Who wants to start? Alison. Can I start with school food? Um, so at the moment, Kellogg's have a marketing campaign out um, saying that they are wonderful because they've been supporting um, school breakfast for the last twenty five years, and um, so you know they're trying to reposition themselves a bit. So I, I suppose I want to come back to the point I made originally about school food. As children have the right to the best possible food they should have. Uh, but if we can't even be bothered to enforce the current legislation we have on school food, which isn't bad, it could be better, but it's not bad. I don't really see the point in putting effort into creating yet something else that won't be enforced. Um, so, and of course, choice is an important part of that, and vegetarian choice um, um, is one of those. Can I come back to the inequalities point as well? Because I have a really mixed view of thinking about this through an inequalities lens. Because, um, yes, if you're living in a deprived area as a child, you are twice as likely to be overweight or obese than the, a child living in the most affluent area. And that's because there's a greater density of fast food outlets, you're more likely to be watching commercial TV, you're more likely to be seeing ads, so there's a whole host of reasons. But about adults, the picture isn't quite so clear. You're a bit more likely to be obese or overweight if you're an adult coming from a deprived area than after one, not that different. And I think it gives a sense, my reason I've got a mixed view about it, because it gives a sense of the other, that it's nothing to do with me it's to do with that poor person over there. If I just shout at them very loudly and tell them to read the food labels, which is one of the default things. Yeah, you even mentioned cycling, which is one of the default things that industry will always come back to. We need the best food labels we can possibly. We need to be physically active, but neither of those things will solve the problem. And we know that from the evidence. Mm. Thanks, Alison. Joe. Yes. Um, I agree entirely with what, what Alison says. Um, school food, you know, there's nothing to stop school food being more nutritious now. Um, you know, you don't actually need 
need any extra legislation. Um, when I go into schools and see chips and pizza on the on the lunch menu, I just despair. Um, equally, you know, vending machines with fizzy drinks. I mean, Stoke-on-Trent has, as well as the the um, obesity issue, we have the the worst uh, dental problems in children in the country. And um, you know, so when when you see that schools, and, and I'm not saying all, you know, there are lots of schools that are very good, but um, that is something where I think every section of society has to take a responsibility, um, down to the, the, the vegetarian meat. I mean, clearly, um, you know, a, a more plant-based diet is, is good for everybody. And so I think the options need to be there, but, um, and it also needs to be tasty vegetarian food, of which there is there is lots, because, you know, in, in um, changing people's eating habits, um, we, we need the healthy option to be a, a tasty option as well, because one thing that hasn't been said is junk food is tasty, you know. I mean, I love cake, you know, and I know it's not good for me, but it tastes good. And so, you know, we're, we're, we're fighting a battle of, of actually everybody's natural instinct. You know, I bet everybody in this room has had something unhealthy during, during conference. You know, you, your mind tells you that you must eat a, a healthier diet. Um, so we need to, to, to make it uh, the preferred option because actually the food tastes as good, if not better, and is better for you. John, I wondered if you wanted to come in particularly on health inequalities. Um, yeah, sure. I, I mean, I take a slightly different view to, to Alison. I, I think this, you know, this whole issue is is shot through with inequalities. You know, uh, obesity is both a result of and a driver of of of. Of, uh, of sort of relative deprivation. I don't think you can really avoid it. Um, I was just thinking about the breakfast thing because I don't really know what, what I I'm not on top of the evidence around breakfast uh, and school food, Lindsay, but just from an anecdotal point of view, so my kids went to a primary school in Croydon, very deprived demographic. The headmaster used to hand out porridge in the morning to, uh, to everyone. And it was a lovely thing, you know, the headmaster came out and did it and everyone liked it and it was healthy porridge, it wasn't loaded with honey and sugar and stuff. But I don't know how sustainable has that been. Uh, I don't think that really instilled healthy eating habits in those kids because I've watched them grow up, watched them, you know, I've worked at home, walked past my window and, you know, I've seen these kids now, secondary school, a lot of them now obese. So that's purely anecdotal, but I imagine that that kind of Providing healthy school food is is only goes some way. Uh, the, the the wider environment in which they're going to move on to, including the out of home sector and so forth, is 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 just as important. It's taking that life course approach is 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 really crucial. Um, I don't really have a view on meat, uh, but you do raise the issue of choices, and again. Price signals has come back to Alex's point around price signals. The, the fact is, people can't afford any sort of healthy food. Lots of people can't afford fruit and vegetables. And you know, a, a, a family in the most deprived quintile. Um, uh, this is in England, but I imagine it's the same in the other countries of the UK as well. Would have to spend forty percent more of their disposable income um, uh, if they were to eat healthily than. than the, uh, the, the the least deprived quintile that would only have to spend about, I don't know, I can't remember what the figure is, but it's like 4% or something. So this is, the whole issue is absolutely shot through with inequalities. You, you can't avoid it. Um, 
and uh, uh, yeah, uh, that, 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 that's why I think another reason this is just so important. Thank you, John. Alex, you were um, prompted uh, in the questions to talk about um, uh, where industry is on uh, on school food. Yes, well, okay, well, thank you for prompting me on something. I I, I really don't know where industry is school food. I, I don't know. I mean, uh, I, I think Alison, you just taught me quite a lot about regulation. I mean, the, you know, I, th I think it's always a risk to sort of come here and say, right, I represent the whole of British industry about everything. <laughs> right, that's not really what we do. Um, so um, I don't know um, if. If, Alison, I think you were saying there is regulation in this space, <laughs> but it's not, not enforced. So, in, so regulation that does the job, but it's not enforced, that, that's a problem, isn't it? And that's, and that's not the, the companies that make the catering companies issue, actually. You have to, you have to enforce regulation, you know, this is the thing. Um, one of our themes, actually, at the minute, that we talk about quite a lot in different things like planning, is we have to resource um, the, 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 the sort of essential functions of, of the public sector so that we can get stuff done. And so maybe this kind of enforcement activity is another example of where you, you, you need to have business. Business needs government to work efficiently to get stuff built, uh, to, to make sure your certs are signed off, to, to make sure you're complying with the regulation, and make sure this, and somebody has to come in and, and, and check that, right? So, but that, that's not something that's kind of an industry view to have. It's a regulation, they've got to meet it. And you might say it's not strong enough, that's a different discussion, but, um, uh, that that seems to be actually a positive thing that's come out of this discussion. There is a regulation in place, um, and I, on on the arthritis point. Now, I I the, the, as I understand it, the big two reasons why people are off work long term, men, as I said before, mental health and musculoskeletal. If I'm getting that right, two big reasons, right? And of course, that they, they they interact with each other, and I'm not an expert in arthritis either, but there must be an, a, a role of, of arthritis in that. A big relationship. Thank you, Doctor Rose. So. Um, what I'm trying to get across today is that I feel that we are at a different point in the debate about business engaging with their staff about well-being and health. We need to make sure managers can have those conversations in a sensitive way. And so I, I would just encourage you to think about us being the, the broadest, the broader business community being actually wanting the same outcome. And then the regulation and specific um, issues around food production and food tax, that, that is something that has to, has to be engaged with with the food sector bodies uh, at that level of detail. But the, the outcome is something that we actually all want. And I think it's a bit of a reflection to take back in you know, my conversation to see what we, what we, what we do next. Um, yeah, thank you for all those questions. I think I'm a big fan of Magic Breakfast work. Um, I think you're amazing. But, um, I think schools also have something really interesting to teach us about kind of the nature of policy as well, um, because we've seen examples, I think the example that comes to mind is I remember in the process of researching our report, we looked at Barrowford Primary School um, and they have introduced um, a much healthier um, set of school meals uh, for their children. Um, I think a portion of them might even be vegetarian, I think two out of five meals might be vegetarian, to your point as well, um, um, but I agree with what's been said about choice. Um, and. Uh, what they did alongside that was they had that kind of intervention to promote um, healthier eating, but they also had education alongside it to teach about why the school meals were changing and what the kind of was happening with the wider food environment. And that was really a really successful um, venture and um, a start of intervention. And I think it kind of brings me to the broad point, which Alex also touched on about collaboration and kind of the role for different um, people within, within government, within industry, um, within local communities. Um, to make a difference in this space. And I wanted to talk about the um, 
Amsterdam Healthy Weight Program is an example of this. So um, they have had government interventions, including um, advertisement bans on the um, subway and in sports stadiums, which is another um, big area of marketing influence in this in this area. Um, uh, they had that, but they also had kind of targeted neighborhood programs where there were kind of local um, collaboration between um, between government, between industry businesses and like charities and just the kind of local population. Um, and that was a really, uh, that's been a really successful example of where policy can kind of cut across these different areas. Um, and they saw a 2.5% reduction in the share of children with obesity in five years, which is an incredibly rapid reduction. and. If you you know see the the trends we've had in the UK, like the, it's they've been untouchable. So seeing a seeing not just a stagnation but a decline is a really big deal. Um, and so I want to talk about that briefly. But the the other aspect um, of inequality, I totally take Alison's point around. This is a whole society issue. Um, but I also take John point, John's point that it is um, an area of very high inequality. There are you know some regions of the UK where more than forty percent of adults are living with obesity, um, and I think. The, we do need to keep the issue of affordability front and centre, that the issue is not just in access to healthy food, but it's in access to affordable healthy food. And we need to keep that front and centre when we're designing policy. Thanks, Sophie. Right, another round of questions. Hello, my name is Charlotte. I'm the new um, Director of Policy at Diabetes UK. So this is my eighth day or something. So I'm in learning mode. And one thing I'm, I'm learning from listening to you is that you keep saying the evidence is clear on inequality, on the role of industry, on regulation, on food formulation, on marketing. So we have the evidence base. But what I'm also hearing very clearly from all of you is that we have failed so far as a sector and as a coalition to create the compelling argument that's, that cannot be ignored by central government largely. Now, you know, I'm in the leadership now of an organization that has a proud campaigning tradition and many organizations in my sector, patient groups, large national patient groups have an ability to make compelling cases. And I'm just wondering whether you would have an ask of organizations like us, like John from BHF and me from Diabetes UK, if we could do one thing to support the creation of a compelling case for government action, what would that be? How would you want us to go about it? What can we bring to the challenge? You know, we've got loads of relationships with the community. We have these assets. We're trusted. We are authoritative. What is it that you think we could do? Because you are looking after the evidence and you're doing so beautifully, but we have obviously failed to make this an unavoidable area of action. Thank you. Uh, Hugo Harper. I'm the mission director from Nesta to cover our healthy life work work. So uh, to half obesity in the UK, it would be about an eight and a half percent reduction in calories. It's, it's not that much. The problem, it just needs to be sustained forever across a very, very large number of people. Um, and we think this kind of method of quantifying things is helpful in the debate. And so could you give us a bit of a sense of how the proposed policy from Recipe for Change, this extension of the sugar and, uh, extension of sugar and salt levy, uh, compares to other policies that come up that people keep mentioning, let's say, why don't we give people more information? Uh, because I think I think it's going to be a lot, lot more impactful. Uh, and I think it's helpful to contextualize that for people. Thank you. Hi, it's Sophie Lawrence from um, investment firm called Green Bank. And I also chair the Investor Coalition on Food Policy, which is a coalition of over 30 investors and 6 trillion in assets under management. 
Um, investors are part of our coalition because they increasingly see the long-term risks that inaction on improving the health of our nation poses to companies, the economy, um, and wider society, as we've heard today. And I was really interested to get the panel's perspective on what they see the role of investors and financial institutions to be in as part of this debate. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so, um, Joe, I wonder if I can come to you first, particularly on the question around um, evidence and, you know, how can uh, this sector work with health organisations like Diabetes UK to build a compelling case? Yeah, yeah, so I'd like to do all three. Sure. So Diabetes UK, uh, I get very annoyed when um, colleagues hold up signs saying, I'm battling diabetes, you know, I'm supporting Diabetes UK. And then with the next breath they go, oh, you know, buy one, get one free, it's fine, people need to have personal choice. Because the inconsistency of messaging, you know, either either you believe that we need to tackle diabetes, in which case you have to be supportive of policies that tackle obesity. So I think highlighting the hypocrisy would be a really good a good place to start. Um, counting calories. Now I was I was in an interview with a dare I say right wing commentator yesterday, uh, who threw back at me that the sugar tax only had an effect of 50 calories, as if that meant that, that so sugar tax was, was complete rubbish and nanny state. So I, I, I think we have to be careful if we use the number of calories as, as a measure of um, how effective we're tackling obesity, because it's, it's not necessarily about calories. It's, it's about, you know, we have the discussion about ultra processed foods and it's about what sort of calories. Um, and the, you know the impact that they're having, uh, green bank. I think that's a really interesting idea. I think investment linked to uh, improving the, the health of the nation is 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 great, and I'd love to have a chat. Thank you, John. I'm going to come to you next. Um, y y yeah, uh, Hugo, your point about counting calories that just brings us back to individual responsibility uh, and individual behaviour change, and that's. And that's not sustainable. As you say, it has to be sustained over a very long period of time. That's why the Recipe for Change Coalition is looking more at mandatory upstream system level interventions to, to make the entire food environment healthier rather than the onus being on individuals to count their calories. Um, you know, I was thinking about this last night. I went out with my sister's family to a restaurant in Chilton and there was calories on the menu and we were discussing them. And I think that's all right for someone like me to, you know, be in that situation where I can, you know, privileged situation to be able to look at that and afford that meal. But I mean, a lot of the people affected by obesity uh, have um, very different sort of lives. They're not, it's, it's not necessarily something that they can fit into their lives, calorie counting. So I, I, I would, yeah, it's, it's, it's not my preferred policy focus, really. I I'm not sure I truly understood your question. Kind of bail Hugo out a bit because I I don't think with Joshua, I don't think that was your question was it Hugo Hugo was asking I think about the scale of the change right. coming from different interventions yeah. and um, I think what we know from the evidence is that things that are that things are going to be more so if you want to invest money in what what to in how to change things and what will bring the biggest bang for the bucks. The sugary drinks levy is a good example of do something once and then you have that change forever going on. Education has to be a constant and it is really expensive to do national campaigns on healthy eating, which need to be done day in, day out. 
and actually even then won't bring about huge amounts of change. They tend to change intention, but not behavior, which is hardly surprising if you think about the avalanche of unhealthy marketing we're all faced with. So, so just a different bit of a different slant on calories on menus, because I can't resist coming back to that, of course. Calories on, lab calories on menus, we have a very big out-of-home sector in this country, massive growth in people at McDonald's and Deliveroo, Just Eat, blah, blah. And that sector paints itself as providing an occasional treat. Yet, um, I think there is data to show that, that well, 25 to 30% of calories that we're consuming come from that sector. That is massive. That's an everyday thing. It's not an occasional treat. I never thought I'd live in a world where it made economic sense to deliver a McDonald's breakfast. But it does, and it does because of the volume being sold. The only bit of responsibility the out-the-home sector currently take is putting calories on menus. That's a tiny bit of responsibility compared to retailers and manufacturers who do full labeling. They do, they do huge amounts of information to consumers. That part of the sector needs to take a massive amount more responsibility. Can I just come back to the banker's point? Oh, yeah, um, the investor's point. They're really important. It's really interesting some of the analysis they're doing on company portfolios because companies will talk about it's all about choice. But then when you look at their portfolio, 75% of the big companies' portfolios, the top 12 companies around the world, are unhealthy. And that is, I can only quote that stat because I'm reading it in the investor analysis stuff. Um, and finally, just... Um, uh, Diabetes UK, they've been, Diabetes UK have been very important, Cancer Research UK have been very, and Sharp Foundation, very important in obesity policies. And that's because they've helped bravery. When we've had things happen, it's happened because politicians have felt they, it, they won't be shut down for it. Well, they might be shut down for it, but maybe not too much. And the NGOs, the big voiced NGOs, helping to create that platform of you can be brave, you can do the difficult, it's the right thing. Being part of that narrative is so important. Big part of the narrative for the sugary drinks tax, which had overwhelming support in parliament, partly because of people like you. Yeah. Thanks, Alison. Alex, did you want to come in on the point around investors and financial Well, yeah, that's really, that's really interesting. Mm. I'm just reflecting on what, what things can you do to make business move and change you know and we talked a lot about investors. regulation of food so yeah investors is it's huge and, and again i'm afraid to so say i will go back to something like esg as they call it these days csr used to call it same thing background and and um the government's just done doing a review about what they call non-financial uh, reporting so what goes into these very big companies uh, esg annual reports etc it's very heavily regulated actually um so the, the way that we see change happen across these, if I can call it progressives, well, morally loaded term, I suppose, but, but these kind of issues, a lot of the time it's transparency reporting, it's what investors want to see them do as well. And then uh, you can have this um, transmission effect down through the supply chain. So that if the larger companies want to do things like report on their carbon accounting, they're going to make the SMEs actually manage their energy. <laughs> and that's going to cost the SMEs a bit of money, they've got to get training, but and, and you're going to see accurate reporting of um, indirect CO2 emissions to us direct, right? So, so this is another mechanism for change. And I just, um, I, again, you, as you can obviously tell, I'm not a food specialist, policy specialist, but 
I just wonder if there's some of these conversations we, we might start to have with your coalition, with people like myself and, and others that play a slightly different role, to think about, well, what, 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 how, how else have, has, has change happened? Because it does happen. Um, is, there, is there a way to, to get the outcomes to the whole sector once that actually brings the, the food industry stakeholders, who are the, the key players in, in a lot of this stuff, obviously, uh, along for the ride? Thanks, Alex. Sophie, you get the final word. Okay, thank you. Um, so I think those points on investors are, are really good. And I want to just add that investment's huge and it kind of is the opportunity to build the future we want to see as well. A lot of this has been about kind of um, tackling the status quo, but there's also a massive space here for building the future we want to see in terms of um, investment in healthy, affordable food options. Um, on kind of the one thing to support uh, a compelling case, again, you know, hugely recognise the work of Diabetes UK in this area. And I think one thing that came out in the report is that we do need a better national conversation around obesity. You know, from the start, we've talked about how this has been a framing issue of people misunderstanding the issue or misrepresenting the issue. And um, that it's a, a better understanding within government um, of what the uh, where there is scope for movement on this, the scale of the problem and what government can do differently. Um, so particularly in terms of, you know, the public don't like being told what they can and can't eat, obviously, like it, food is intensely personal. Are there good reasons for that? Um, but the public do recognise, um, particularly um, the need to, uh, the issues of childhood obesity and need to protect children um, in this context um, and the opportunities and risks in terms of the economy as well that we've mentioned here today. And I think if you can highlight those huge benefits for policy, um, then there's a, a huge scope for improvement there. Brilliant. Thank you, Sophie. Okay, I think we've already run slightly over time, so I'm going to have to uh, draw this event to a close. Um, just one more thank you to the Obesity Health Alliance, the Food Foundation and Sustain for making this event possible. Thank you to our brilliant panel and thank you to all of you for joining us and for your great questions. Thank you.